Greetings and welcome to Murray's Monday, the official podcast of the Murray's Political Newsletter. I'm Kyle Malin, joined by the boss, John Rurink, Samantha Schreiber, and our special guest this week again joining us is Jordan Hermony from MLive and also Rachel Just from Sinclair Broadcasting. Thank you all for participating in this year's award of Senator of the Year. This is the last of our four awards that we give at the end of the year to recognize uh, public officials and legislators for being the most effective, active, and impactful for the previous calendar year. We're gonna end, uh, like I said, with the Senator of the Year, and we've got some nominations. And John, why don't we go ahead and uh, start with you? I gotta tell you, Kyle, these Senator of the Year and Representative of the Year awards this year have been really kind of difficult. There's not a lot of bright, shiny objects out there in terms of public policy, good public policy accomplishments that you can point to. It was kind of a tired year. It was kind of a lackluster year. It's kind of a sleepy year. And that's one of the reasons that I've kind of come down to renominating once again uh, Senator Jim Stamas uh, for his role in Lansing this last uh, 12 months. As you know, I, I get some advice from some of our subscribers who work more frequently with these members on public policy issues. And after talking to uh, one of them in particular, I was struck by how much this person uh, held in high esteem the work Thomas did this year in terms of continuing to keep the public policy mill going. He was uh, described to me as willing and open to different ideas, continuing to push on the public policy process, despite, quote, Majority Leader Shirky going into the fetal position on governance, unquote. Uh, that might be a little rough, but uh, that was what was told to me. So, and it was Jim Stamas who was pointed to as a member of the Majority Caucus who kept kept the trains running, kept it going. So, for that reason, I'm going to again nominate uh, Senator Jim Stamas, Senator Appropriations uh, Chair, as the Senator of the Year for 2022. Well, thank you. I, I like that nomination, John. The Senate Appropriations Committee and spending in general is the only reason, if you remember, that legislators came back in September. They wanted to approve that $1 billion supplemental spending bill designed to put $840 million back into the Strategic Outreach and Attraction Fund, or otherwise known as SOAR. Now, I know you guys remember this. Republicans politically were grumbling about this. They didn't want to give Governor Whitmer all this money to trumpet across the state, but Jim Stamas saw the bigger picture, worked with House Speaker Jason Wentworth, and allowed the Strategic Fund Board to uh, cut the deals uh, needed to uh, help make these projects happen. Now, again, we're not taking policy positions on whether this was a good or a bad idea, but remember, this award goes to the center who is the most effectful, impactful, and had the highest level of activity. And had it not been for Stamas's Senate Bill 844, uh, nothing would have ever gotten passed in September. They wouldn't have never met. He not only convinced his own conservative caucus to go along with this spending bill, but he sold it to House Speaker Jason Wentworth. Um, and to the extent that the House Appropriations Committee chair voted no on the bill, and then when it came to the House floor, and then it later drove Tom Albert, the aforementioned chair, to resign his position on principle because of some of the things that this spending bill uh, entailed. So uh, whether it came to school safety spending, outfitting schools with uh, tools to help keep them safe, natural resource projects, or, or whatever spending um, that took place in Lansing this year, uh, it all came down to Senator Jim Stamas. So thanks for that nomination, John. Good one. All right, Samantha Schreiber, what do you got? 
Hello, everybody. I have decided to nominate Senator Roger Victory, a Hudsonville area Republican and chair of the Senate Judiciary and Public Safety Committee, as well as chair of the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on Agriculture and Rural Development and General Government to be this year's MERS Senator of the Year. One could say a lot of the gems of the fiscal year 2023 budget are from the general government artery. Essentially, it was this year's ambitions to create a budget that offered truly competitive revenue sharing with local communities, uh, as well as to pay down debt so it was out of sight and out of mind as Michigan continues to work with a large chunk of money that's remaining in its bank account and still coming into it, as well as to establish a stabilizing allowance for future investments or maybe more unfortunate circumstances that could appear in the future. Senator Victory also sponsored successfully signed legislation removing the mandate for public school districts to meet the 3% interest minimum for state bond loans, which he said in March could save school districts participating in the state bond loan program around $9 million in annual interest costs. Speaking of building a foundation for the incoming legislature, Senator Victory kicked off his time as chair of the Senate Judiciary and Public Safety Committee, wanting to prioritize a truly bipartisan police improvement package, personally introducing a bill requiring the Michigan Commission on Law Enforcement Standards, MCOLS, to develop a guideline for independent investigations of officer-involved deaths, with each agency creating a publicly available policy on how they fulfill fill those instructions. I additionally feel like Senator Victory, a year-round specialty crop farmer, will have a role to play as Michigan continues to try to capitalize off of as well as to invest in its agricultural diversity, which, believe it or not, reportedly ranks second to only California. We've talked again and again about how this year we saw Democrats obtaining unique endorsements from farming-based organizations. However, I think to keep up that trust, Republican legislators that come from the farming world and have dedicated tremendous time and personal and professional resources into that background have must have a seat at the table as the state continues to try harnessing the full potential and power of its agricultural network. Uh, And it's for those various reasons that I have decided to nominate Senator Victory. Well, thank you for that nomination, Samantha. You know, Senator Victory had three public acts this year and one that lowered the interest rates for about 124 school districts. Um, But what really struck me about Senator Victory is the 15 committee meetings that he had for his committee, uh, his new committee, I might add, uh, Judiciary and Public Safety Committee. It's not as if Roger Victory didn't have enough on his plate already prior to getting this assignment when Pete Lacito left in uh, 2021. Uh, He has the chairmanship of the General Government Subcommittee which is one of the big three, I think, on the approach side with DHHS and school aid. So he already had a pretty full plate, but he took on this very busy committee historically and uh, had 15 public hearings or public committee meetings in the first half of uh, 2022. And um, he saw through 33 bills that eventually became public acts, which accounted for, by my calculation, 14% of the bills 
that became law in 2022. So he was definitely very active, uh, very impactful, as Samantha said, during the appropriations process, and uh, very effective. So, uh, Senator Victory, good nomination. Thank you, Sam. All right, Rachel, you're up. Who is your nominee for Senator of the Year? So I... Um being indecisive, I've got a two-parter here. I've got Senator Curtis Rattel and Senator Jimmy in it. Oh, you're doing a two-parter. I am, yes. All uh, right, explain why. Yeah, so they have, you know, and we've seen more interviews and them talking about it more openly, but they, since they first started in the legislature, both of them now being termed out, they've been wanting to flip the Senate. It hasn't been flipped in a long time. So they, <laughs> that's something that I know that they had been focused on. We finally saw that happen. And not only in addition to the Senate being flipped for the first time, we saw the House flip. So for the first time since Ronald Reagan was president, we're going to have a blue legislature. And I very much that is due in part to their them and their work. Um, kind of a honorary mention there, though, I want to acknowledge Mallory McMorrow and the, the amount of fundraising she did, which I believe was instrumental in flipping the Senate. Um, she, you know, as we know, went viral a couple of months ago and the attention she gained from that, she was able to get a lot of money put towards Democrats cause. And I think that was a, a big factor as well. So three people, there you go. <laughs> well, you know, for uh, Jim Ananick, I mean, this is kind of a lifetime achievement award. He's had the Senator of the Year Award or the Democratic Member of the Year Award when he was in the House, and then Senator Hertel has been Democratic Member of the Year. But beyond that, I mean, they have been as effective as minority members as I think any legislator I have seen. I mean, their ability, especially uh, Senator Hertel in the appropriations process, has been able to um, really smooth out the entire conversation about appropriations. Uh, in a way where Democrats have gotten as much, if not more, than they have ever gotten before. And let me just explain how things used to work. And that is Democrats would just throw up amendments during roll call votes, get them shot down, but say, we fought the good fight and uh, we put these up and we got the Republicans to vote no on them. And so they look like the bad guys. And that was their wins. They never actually got any money. They just got votes that, you know, maybe could politically... Uh, they could use politically against Republicans later. Now, with Curtis Sertel, Curtis Sertel actually went into the room and said, if you want our votes, we, we would like this, this, and this. Can you give us this? And would actually bargain. It would actually negotiate and get things for Democrats. And so when it would go in front of the chamber, you would see a wide number of Democrats who would actually vote for things. And they would do, the, they would do some... You know, some of the um, uh, roll call votes on things in the budget, but it wasn't as much. And uh, it was a, you know, from a public standpoint, we didn't really get to see what was in the budget, which is a different thing altogether. But uh, from the Democrat standpoint, they got something out of it. So I got to give it to him for that. And that is that is kind of maybe that's more of a lifetime achievement recognition or something but i don't know jordan what what have you seen uh jordan hermany from m live you're joining us what did what did you see here from the uh from curtis hertel and jim ananick i mean i think rachel hit it right on the head i mean these are two guys who like you guys have been saying have been fighting the good fight their entire career to try and get democrats to flip the senate for the first time in four decades roughly um, and they have a lot to show for it. Their farewell speeches were incredibly moving. I mean, they really seem to be, I, I hate to use this phrase because it seems a cliche, but in it for the people. I mean, they definitely, 
I don't know, this, these are folks who devoted their whole career to trying to do this and they have something to show for it, which is something that hasn't come about in a real long time. You know, and working with Mike Shirky, the Senate Majority Leader, is is always, you know, I, I have to believe that uh, is brings its own challenges. And um, to keep that chamber kind of moderating, they could have done the whole conspiracy uh, witch hunt. They could have talked about uh, looking into the election and looking under rocks for missed votes and uh, widespread fraud. And, and that didn't happen. And part of that is because of the relationships that Jim Ananick and Curtis Sertel was able to make with the Senate Majority Leader, talk them off that ledge and say, you know what, you really don't want to do this. You really, really don't want to do this. And um, very convincing, obviously, because they didn't do it. And other states did. Wisconsin went down that rabbit hole. Arizona is still trying to figure it out. Um, and uh, Michigan was uh, not on that list. And um, I think that speaks to the work that these two individuals did. So thank you for that nomination, Rachel. Thank you, Kyle. I think that's something maybe Republicans can keep an eye on when they when they're in the minority. You know, how did they get back in charge? It could, they could look to Anna Nick and, and her tell them how they did it. Jordan, so who's your nominee here for Senator of the Year? I would have to go with Senator Wayne Schmidt. He's a Republican from Traverse City. And much like my reasoning for wanting to nominate Angela Whitwer uh, for House Member of the Year, Schmidt has by and large been a bipartisan workhorse for his time in office. I mean, he was one of the first Republicans to get behind uh, expanding the Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act. He has been a longtime voice on the raising the earned income tax credit. I mean, you saw him championing that alongside Donna Lazinski earlier this year uh, at the Mackinac Island Policy Conference. He was uh, the bill sponsor for moving the presidential primary, which we saw kind of fizzle out towards the end of this year. But I mean, that's obviously going to be something that comes back early next. Um, but he was just a guy that was willing to work with the other side and not bring, as silly as it sounds, politics into politics. He was willing to talk about what needed to be talked about. He's willing to do it in a respectful manner. And he has, you know, the, the history to show for it. Granted, he was usually a lone voice in his caucus, or at least if not lone, one of the ones who was, you know, the only one willing to sort of go up in, in front of the media and say, hey, this is what I, I believe, this is what I believe needs to happen, especially with regard to things like the Elliott Larson uh, Civil Rights Act. But he, he wasn't afraid to do that. And you really have to give him credit for being willing to be that voice because he felt that this was going to be the best thing for the people of Michigan. You know, taking a look at his work, and we are recording on December 19, he's already got five public acts at this point, but there were several bills that uh, he introduced that went through in lame duck, and we'll see if they get signed into law as well. But maybe the biggest accomplishment, I think, Jordan, is the equalization of the school aid funding. And um, that that erasing that gap between what schools receive from the state finally got closed when Wayne Schmidt was the chair of the Senate appropriations K through 12 uh, subcommittee. So I know that was a huge priority for him representing districts up north, uh, which traditionally had gotten less than uh, schools maybe in the urban areas. And he really wanted to erase that gap. And I know there was a lot of work. There was a lot of people responsible for that. But on the Senate side, he was a huge champion for it and uh, uh, was able to uh, lay claim to that and make that happen. So a great accomplishment for Wayne Schmidt and uh, great nomination. Thanks, Jordan. 
I'd like to nominate a true statesman and policymaker who Lansing is going to miss in 2023, and that's Senator Ken Horn from Frankenmuth. Horn is respected on both sides of the aisle as someone whose heart is truly into improving the lives of his constituents and the state in general. This year, he sponsored a public act to create Michigan's first-time home buyer savings program. He worked with Representative Mari Manugian to allow for a tax exempt savings account for up to $5,000 for singles and $10,000 for a joint return. And he sponsored another public act to allow MDOT to work with the private sector in uh, advancing this automotive this automated vehicle roadway technology. He was also part of the bipartisan project with Senator Wayne Schmidt, Senator Winnie Brinks, and Senator Jerry Moss that would give developers, builders, and nonprofits more incentive to work with local governments to create workforce housing for their employees. Instead of fighting this Michigan Strategic Outreach and Attraction Reserve Fund, or SOAR, Horn found ways to use it to move Michigan toward the head of the pack uh, when it comes to other states and electric vehicle, battery, semiconductor, and other initiatives. And within the Republican caucus, he was among the senators making the case as to why these incentives were critical, whether it was chip production or electric vehicles. He worked on several other initiatives uh, to expand economic opportunities in Michigan. Uh, I'm thinking of this, uh, this permanent fund to fund uh, Visit Detroit or the Detroit Sports Commission, get you know, more Super Bowls and All-Star Games and Final Fours and everything into the Motor City. Uh, he'd like to see those initiatives permanently funded so we can get more of those big, big uh, events. Uh, but he also led the charge on the need for $803 million in capital outlay projects for universities and colleges, uh, which did pass out of the Joint Capital Outlay Committee. Uh, maybe just this important, though, Horn has had a level head that isn't consumed with politics all the time, he is looking for ways government can help advance projects and initiatives. How can Lansing help has been a constant theme of Horn's 14-year tenure in this town. He's a classy, respected legislator. He's been effective, impactful, and active throughout his career, honestly. But uh, it's 2022, and this year was no exception. Someone who is deserving to be considered Senator of the Year, Senator Ken Horn. When it comes to 2022, which will go down as the least productive legislative session in at least half a century, if not a century, we looked for whatever spark we could find. And what did happen in 2022 in the Senate is because Jim Stamas made it happen. We mentioned Senate Bill 844, which included $540 million in the incentives for Goiton to make these electric vehicle battery parts in Big Rapids, an area of this state that has historically needed jobs. But the bill also had this long-sought-after long wastewater line from Coopersville to Muskegon to spur agriculture industry expansion in this area of the state, uh, which has really wanted this pipeline, and they've been working on this pipeline for uh, about a decade. Uh, there's also the wastewater line to assist an expansion project for the, semi, or the Hemlock Semiconductor Plant in Thomas Township. And that said, we have seen in years past 
where legislatures have ended the year with a boatload of money, and they've gone on these wild spending sprees. They ask lawmakers, uh, the leaders ask lawmakers to come up with their district's wish list, and uh, they all bring their ornaments together, and they hang them on an enormous Christmas tree, and uh, it gets celebrated and passed on the last day of session. Well, that didn't happen this year because Jim Stamas didn't want it to happen. Uh, Stamas was the most impactful member of the state Senate in 2022. He helped broker the deal that got the $4.8 billion water infrastructure supplemental back on and uh, made that happen in March. Probably the most substantive thing that got done all session. Uh, this was money that went to dam construction, PFAS removal, water quality, the beleaguered UIA system, simply just a score of projects that came from the Biden infrastructure funds and the federal COVID relief funds. Now, you could argue that this money was a use it or lose it kind of situation. And Stamas was just the right committee chair at the right time. But remember, there was a faction in both the majority Republican Senate and House caucus that didn't want anything to do with this borrowing spending spree. All of this federal money is borrowed money. And the federal debt is already $23 trillion. And there is a strong sentiment in that Republican caucus that Americans should not contribute to its growth. But Stamas made the case that if it doesn't come to Michigan, it will go somewhere else. And that argument helped move this uh, spending through. We had six supplemental appropriations bills signed into law this year. We had the COVID relief dollars going to bonuses for healthcare workers. We had the 1.2 billion in COVID dollars that went to universities and college infrastructure. Uh, Michigan Tech's Health Technology Center was some of that. And at long last, the outstanding civil lawsuit on the old Snyder era UIA computer problem was settled, finally put in the rearview mirror. Uh, we had the creation of a new college scholarship that was born, this new Michigan Achievement Scholarship. Uh, they were able to rename it, so the acronym was not MAGA, which would have been kind of funny, really. Um, and Stamas also made sure this initiative got through uh, with uh, Senator Kim Lasada uh, being kind of the driving force there. Uh, but going back to the omnibus spending bills, um, but let, let's talk here about the, the constitutionally required thing that's done here. Uh, for the Senate. That's the um, appropriation spending bills for the coming year. That got done through omnibus again. But think about this. The main budget spending bills for 2023 passed the Senate 37 to 0 and 35 to 2. Now, I'm just going to make a bet here that that's not going to happen in the next four years where we have these bills just practically unanimously fly through. It's because Thomas had an effective relationship with Senator Curtis Hertel and Senate Minority Leader Jim Ananick on the Democratic side. They cut out agreeable compromises to prevent partisan hand-wringing. Most of the negotiations that came out of the Senate this year came out of the appropriations process. Thomas drove the train on the process. He was effective, impactful, and active in an otherwise low-activity year. So for us here at MERS, Jim Thomas is the clear Senator of the Year.
Joining us now on the podcast is Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky, at least for a few more days. You're, you're technically still the Senate Majority Leader. Uh, Mike Shirky, thank you for being on the MERS Monday podcast. You're welcome, Kyle. Thanks for inviting me. We have one more day, actually, of session left, don't we? Signy die. Are you going to show up? Uh, not a good, not a, not a very good chance of that happening. No, I think that'll just be a, a, uh, perfunctory process. <clears throat> now your last session day that uh, you yeah. were in, you gave a farewell speech that has received uh, quite a bit of attention. Tell me the reaction that you've received from it. Uh, quite a bit of attention. That's one way of saying it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that, uh, I've learned over the last 13, 14 years that that uh, some the number of the people in the media, uh, present company excluded, um, enjoy making game out of me because they just you know they just they're they are not intellectually curious and, uh, and they'd rather take shots than uh, than dig in. So, yep, this uh, that was a purposeful farewell speech. It's not typical. I did do did spend a fair amount of time in the beginning thanking the people that needed to be thanked, especially my wife. Uh, but then it's you know I took a book, took a page out of George Washington's um, farewell speech, and he laid out a lot of things that he was concerned about, and um, and his was a lot longer than mine, <laughs> thankfully for to some people, but um, that's what I felt compelled to do. Obviously, the focus has been on this talk about one world governance and the growing power of the World Economic Forum. Now, there's been a, there was a concern back when the United Nations was formed after World War II of something similar happening, and yet it hasn't happened. So why do you think that the World Economic Forum, which would seem to be just a benevolent organization of like-minded individuals, is going to create something like a one world governance so you got it you got it uh, out of order a little bit okay. i mean i spent i spent a few minutes reviewing the lessons learned from our COVID, our joint COVID experience and i was very specific about laying out things that happened that if i had challenged anybody three years prior to that do you think this would ever happen everybody would have said Oh no, there's no way that could never happen. But yet it did. And it's important to know that these notions uh, that, uh, that you're referring to, uh, World Economic Forum, uh, Klaus Schwab, you know, the fact that he is, he is routinely recorded being very clear and very candid, quite frankly, about what their objectives are and what they want to accomplish. And this is where we're going to tie this now, uh, Kyle. I knew this was going to happen, and I was prepared for it. But uh, you know, this is also biblical in proportion. Is that is that in the Book of Revelation it talks about the fact that over time, when 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 it's time for Christ to come back, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of turmoil in this in this world, and it's going to be focused on uh, one world government, one world healthcare, one world religion. And if we're not prepared for it, uh, doesn't mean it's happening tomorrow, doesn't mean it's happening you know, next year, but it's going to happen. And, um, and I'm, a big, I'm a big believer that you know, we have to learn from our experiences. And just because it doesn't make sense, 
neither did shutting down schools make sense, but yet we did it. And, um, and so that's the, that's the reason why I spent so much time laying out the arguments. But haven't we been talking about kind of the second mm-hmm. coming of Christ and, and things becoming, going into tumult, like is discussed in Revelations, for decades and, and for centuries, actually. I mean, there was talk in the 1840s about uh, this being a time of tumult, and uh, this is the sign of things to come. And uh, what makes this point in history, 2022, um, special? Well, I don't know that it's any more special than previous, uh, but it's not for man to know, Kyle, when that time will occur. It is for man to be prepared. And, uh, you know, I think some of the things that have occurred in the last four years, uh, particularly as they related to COVID and all the the, uh, peripheral things that that came about from COVID, um, are very close, are very clear signals that, you know, that's, it's, it's going to happen. I'm not suggesting for a moment that it's, it's imminent. Okay. But we, I, but I am suggesting that we have to be prepared and we can't ignore it. We can't put our head in the sand and we can't deny it. And I believe these kinds of pressures, these kinds of things worldwide, just look at what they're, what's happening with their energy uh, industry. Look at what's ha- happening with their food industry in Europe. These kinds of things... You and I, again, if I'd asked you four years ago, do you think that would ever happen? Your answer would have been unequivocal. No, that could never happen. But it is. It is. And that's why I think it's important that uh, somebody remind folks that, and these are the kinds of things that will make our differences, our political differences, diminutive. And that was part of my message, part of my message to... uh, specific to Winnie and Eric. I says, guys, you, you try to work together because if, if these things happen, like I kind of think they will, um, <clears throat> uh, those challenges are going to make our political differences pale in comparison. So are, do you believe that we are nearing one world governance or is, are you just warning that it could happen? Well, let me give you an example. Um, Biden signed a World Health Organization agreement that all the all the countries in the world would respond to pandemics similarly, and this was well doc. It's well documented. It happened in the last uh, year or so, and that is a movement toward a you know universal healthcare system, uh, uh, healthcare response in in the world, and you have to you have to identify and you have to recognize the kinds of challenges that are occurring with regards to the energy sector and the influence that's going to have uh, in our cultures. Uh, we are, we are, this is a different time. It's a different time. And like I said, I'm not suggesting for a moment that I can predict with certainty the timing, in other words, when, but I do believe I have an obligation. We all have an obligation to study history, to study the Bible, and to understand that these are these are not fabrications. These are actual um, predictions that are going to happen, and it is for us to be prepared for them. In talking with folks after the speech, they think you're off your rocker. Yeah, I know. I know. Yep. And uh, that is not the first time 
Uh, I've been accused of that in these last 14 years. You would, you know that for sure. Well, and for example, I mean, right after January 6th, you were convinced or you told folks that there was one person who was behind the January 6th riots and that the FBI was on to them and that we'd find out who it was. But we, we never really have come to that. No, we haven't. The Death Commission has not done its job. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's still unfolding uh, before our very eyes. Um, I think January 6th was a, was a horrific event. Uh, I don't think as horrific as some people think it was. Uh, I think that there's still people who want to, um, well, how should I say it, make it bigger than it was. It was very traumatic and very uh, troubling. And, you know, most of us watching it on TV teared up when we saw what was happening. But it was a high emotional, high emotion time in our country. What made you most upset in watching it? What made me most upset in watching it was the very obvious inaction of those who I thought were there present to protect the facilities and the people. In other words, uh, police and security. Apparently, I wasn't there, so I, I can't speak from a firsthand experience, but based on what I observed, apparently just standing down and letting people do what they wanted to do. That, to me, was very bizarre. Well, they, you could argue they were just trying to protect themselves because they thought they were um, uh, completely outnumbered and any resistance would be futile. Well, <clears throat> looked like they were pretty calm to me. All right. Another thing that I wanted to talk to you about is the media. Uh, where do you believe the media is at this point? A free speech and the active and intellectually curious media is vital to the health of our country. And what I observed, what I continue to observe, is that media in general are very expert now at just adopting narratives and not challenging assumptions. Now, let me ask you a question, Kyle. All right. In your in your lifetime, in your experience, how many times in a in an order in a time period of uh, let's say twelve months, have you observed firsthand um, media personalities just fainting on television, just dropping over, fainted? How many times have you seen that? Multiple well, times. Well, I, I gotta confess, I don't watch a lot of TV news, so I haven't seen. All right, it. so let me let me change the question because I know you follow, follow athletics. How many times have you seen in your lifetime where athletes have just high-performing, high-conditioned athletes have just fallen over, fainted, and in some cases died? Yeah. But, but you don't see anybody in the media actually questioning, well, what could possibly have caused that to happen? Now, I'm not suggesting that I know. All I know is that something caused it, mm -hmm. and yet there's no effort. None. In fact, I believe you could make a case that there are people trying to cover it up. Hmm. I, I don't know of anybody fainting, but... Um, you've, you've not witnessed a soccer game where, <laughs> where players have just keeled over? <laughs> uh, they've been very tired, yeah, and they've... Yeah, they've... Uh, I, I guess um, marathon runners, I guess I have seen that, yeah. 
But but anyway, the point the point that you're trying to make though, as far as the media is, are you going to make the point, or are you you asking me? No, I'm asking you. So the the connection then between the two is. So why is so why are why are the major United States life insurance companies reporting uh, statistically significant excess deaths right now, and what has occurred during the time period to cause the excess oh, deaths, and and where is and where is the intellectual curiosity for researchers and media, basically media, uh, I believe, in the truest form, are researchers. Where is the effort to unfold and uncover what's behind that? I don't know. All I know is this. It's caused by something. It's caused by something. Now, let's put our heads together, roll our sleeves up, and stop just simply adopting the narrative that is being offered and find out what the heck is going on. So you're saying that there has been an excess number of deaths outside of COVID in recent months or in the last couple of years, and we really don't know what is behind it. I'm not saying it. The insurance companies are saying it. Okay. But this is an example to you that the media in general is not intellectually curious and is too quick to adopt whatever the narrative is or the theme at the time and just running with that as opposed to just actually just digging into something and, and finding out what's going on. You said it perfectly. Okay. I'm not, I'm not going to try to improve upon that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you about this last legislative session because the mm -hmm. legislature met fewer days than it has since, and we went back and looked since 1950. Why is that? Well, uh, I think it's pretty simple to conclude what the reason is for it, and that is that there wasn't an appetite to, to uh, you know, solve problems in a in a um, cooperative way. Uh, in the in toward the end of session, where there was a number of issues that you know could have been handled, um, you know, I think that we've off we offered solutions. The legislature did, and basically most of them were rejected. So there's no reason to pound your head against the wall. And uh, they, it was apparent to me that there was a general feeling that we now have taken control. And so, you know, we're not going to, we don't, we have no interest in cooperating. We'll just get, you guys just get out of the way and we'll take over. And, and I'm saying, okay, let's uh, see how that works. So you're saying that from the gov from negotiating with the governor, that it was so difficult to try and find compromise. And I'm just not talking about lame duck. I'm just talking about the whole session that you just basically said there's no point because we're not getting anywhere. It, it appeared to me that there was really no sincere interest in doing so. Now, your experience in that, I guess, is kind of based in what what happened with past budgets, um, COVID, COVID response? All those things and more. And more. Mm -hmm. What was it like trying to work with the governor as far as you're concerned? Uh, it was always, you were always working, we were always working through somebody else. And very seldom were there one-on-one -on -one conversations. Uh, very seldom were there actual um, intellectual debates. Um and, you know, when I challenged the assumptions and challenged decisions, 
uh, the response was generally speaking, for instance, um, well, we're just following the science. Well, what science? And, you know, there's still a long list of my questions about what science was being followed um, that was that were never answered. So, you know, that's just a good that's a good overview of uh, what the experience was like. Uh, and things look like they were starting off on a, a positive and, and cooperative note with the passing of the the auto insurance reforms. Uh, things look like they were going pretty good. Then, from your standpoint, where did things go off the rails? Uh, unilateral unilateral decision making when 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 it came to uh, COVID, and there was no interest to debate and no interest to to discuss uh, the broad findings of science. Um, I still maintain today, and I have been, it has been uh, clearly uh, proven that my claim that natural immunity is uh, far exceeds the, the uh, any other immunity acquired during this process. And that, that has been proven over and over again. But yet, yet here's, 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 here's a one for you, Kyle. Okay. Since, since 2020, when, when we experienced COVID, tell me how many times you've seen the Department of Health and Human Services uh, endeavor to explain to people the kinds of things they can do to maximize their immunity, the immune system. The answer is none. Hmm. There's never been there's never been a public service agreement uh, announcement. There's never been anything along those lines. It was always just a one one dimension solution, and uh, that to me. Is horrific. You that mean the one me is the one dimension being what vaccinations? Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course. And and what else could you think the uh, the department could have done to tell people how they could protect themselves from COVID? Follow the science. There's <laughs> we have we have lived centuries upon centuries and have learned that there are natural things that we can do both in our diet and in our habits that maximize our very unique and miraculous immune systems in these bodies. Mm. And it was, and it was never ever discussed. Like taking vitamin D, for example, like vitamin D is a very good example, or just getting out in the sunshine. Things before COVID even became a thing that um, there was the discussion about raising the, uh, the tax on gasoline to go toward the roads and things kind of fell apart. In that summer of 2019, um, did you offer or did you consider raising the gas tax? I know the governor wanted 45 cents, but you had put out a proposal to raise that gas tax 15 cents, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, uh, Speaker Chatfield and I uh, put together more than one proposal to increase funding for roads, which would have resulted in modest increases in taxes, but they were rejected because, you know, uh, the governor had her eye on 45 cents. And uh, that was soundly rejected by the people of Michigan. And, and uh, so, yeah, I'm not going to rehash that yeah, stuff. Okay. That seems like but, uh, long ago history. Well, the reason I bring it up, though, is because it it kind of speaks to the point that I was asking you earlier about why the legislature this year didn't do anything. And my question or my reason in bringing that up is, was this just an example of you trying to find some middle ground, you hit a brick wall, and you're like, you know what, I, I'm not going to do that anymore. So I guess we'll just give up. 
Well, I'm not, never going to accept the notion of somebody saying to give up. We 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 did a lot of things. Um, we we are we are pressed, and this is this this applies to both political parties. That we have we have um, uh, extremes within our parties, and so you know we didn't. There was no you know, terrific uh, majority margin, and all votes were close, and they were they were. Uh, you know, individual individual subgroups of people within the caucuses, both in the House and the Senate, that uh, you know made it made it a challenge to uh, to get things done, get things passed. Because, like I said, we have we are we are divided as a country, and we are divided even within our parties um, uh, politically. And all right, so when I say give up, I'm saying that if you take a look at the legislature since July four, you all met five times and. A conclusion one could make is that you guys did quit. Well, every day that we don't we don't uh, have a session day, and every day that we don't pass laws, I think is a victory for people of Michigan because we're not infringing in their in their uh, in their lives. You, you can disagree with that if you like. That's okay. <laughs> I'm not going to state an opinion here, um, but I did. I, as you look back now at your time in the legislature, what are you going to remember the most? I'm going to remember labor freedom, where unions are as free to make their case as workers are to make their choice. I'm going to remember working through a number of healthcare-related issues that I think improved our ability to let people practice whatever their skill sets are at their maximum uh, trained ability. I'm going to remember, you know, the uh, the arguments over expanding Medicaid eligibility, and a lot of my friends in the Republican Party still. Uh, are upset with me for doing that, but I still believe both from an economic and a healthcare standpoint, uh, it was the right thing to do. So those are the kinds of things that uh, I'll remember. What did you make of this coverage about Donald Trump and your visit uh, to the White House? I don't read it. Oh. I don't, I don't, I have no idea what's being said. I just don't read it. When did, how long have you stopped reading the newspapers? Oh, I probably stopped reading newspapers for the most part back in uh, early 21. Where do you get your news? Listen to Kyle Malin. <laughs> yeah, okay. You listen to this podcast, right? Uh, apparently, Donald Trump told the legislators, uh, told you and uh, the speaker and the other folks who were in the contingent to have some backbone and do the right thing in regards to oh. the 2020 loss. Yeah, well, I can, I can attest to the fact that that was very clearly implied inferred. Uh, and I can also tell you that three times, three specific times, I told the president no. And then when I had, uh, when he had uh, Rudy Giuliani on the conference call while we were in the Oval Office, uh, Giuliani was doing his, um, his uh, ranting. And uh, I, in, I actually had to yell to interrupt him and ask him, Rudy, 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 when are you going to press charges or when are you going to file a lawsuit? Because until you do that, all I'm, it seems like to me, all you're doing is talking. So um, it was, it was, there was a few moments of sincere intensity there. It was not animus. There was no animus. But, uh, you know, you could tell that there was a mood, put it that way. Why did you say no? Because uh, there were a lot of Republicans who were looking for a yes. They wanted to find the widespread fraud that cost Donald Trump the election. I wanted to find it. 
I wanted to find it. I wanted Trump to be president, and uh, I voted for him, but I couldn't. And I earnestly looked. Uh, we, I earnestly looked, and then when I ultimately the 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 the, um, the real piece of data that caused me to just back off from that was recognizing that recognizing that uh, you know Kent County and Oakland County were unique were unique outliers in that election, and that down ticket Republicans were elected pretty robustly. But not at the top of the ticket. And uh, if the if the if Donald Trump had received the same number of winning votes in Oakland County and Kent County as the two respective county sheriffs, he would have won Michigan. He wouldn't he wouldn't have necessarily won the the nation, but he would have won Michigan. So that's the kind of data that, and that's the intellectual curiosity that I think is missing, is that okay, I, it's not the outcome I wanted, but you know, you roll your sleeves up and you go find out. Can I ask you one more question about um, what you've made of the coverage on Lee Chatfield? You can ask me all you want, but I'm not sure you're going to get an answer. <laughs> what do you make of the coverage that Lee Chatfield has received as far as uh, being so tight in with lobbyists that uh, they fueled trips for him all over the place? I, I just think the whole thing is a very sad uh, chapter in our in our in our state's history, and uh, we are all human, and we are all vulnerable. And uh, I'm afraid that he was in this particular time, in this particular case, he was more vulnerable than uh, than he could handle. And I just wish we could get this chapter behind us. I feel sorry for the victims. I feel sorry for the families and. I feel frankly sorry for Michigan for having to go through this. No charges yet. You think that it was just temptation? I don't know. I, do, I sim simply don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Mike Shirky, Senate Majority Leader, for a few more days anyway. Any other closing thoughts you want to share? Nope. I'm sure we're, we've provided plenty of fodder for your friends and media to, uh, you know, fill out a few more columns. Uh, we'll see. Um, are you going to Florida? Are you retiring? You you taking off to Florida? We're going to say uh, sayonara. We are. I'm not moving to Florida. No, but we will spend. We will be spending a you know fair amount of our winters in Florida going forward. But no, we're not moving to Florida. Florida, yeah. no way. Got too many. Got a dozen grandkids that uh, are precious, and we're not going to miss them. I can understand. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it. You're you're welcome, Kyle. Thank you. That's going to do for this week's edition of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all our other podcasts. I'd also like to thank Senator Mike Shirky for his time and uh, answering questions here as we close out 2022. And uh, the panel who helped nominate our Senator of the Year, Rachel Just from Sinclair Broadcasting, Jordan Hermony from MLive, of course, uh, our crew here, Samantha Schreiber, and the boss, John Rurick. For the rest of the MERS team, have a happy new year. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the MERS Monday podcast for the year 2022. I'm Kyle Mullen. Take care.